Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed wherever you live with the Newcastle Libraries app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we live, the Awabakal and Waramai people, who were the first storytellers of this nation and are the proud survivors of more than 200 years of continuing dispossession. This is the Broken Chain series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real and local artist Damien Lenane. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed throughout the series are solely attributed to the host and guests of the program and do not reflect the official policy or position of the City of Newcastle. The following episode of Broken Chains contains coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of Broken Chains, a podcast on the prison system. My name is Damien Lenane and I was sentenced to two years imprisonment in 2015 for crimes the sentencing magistrate described as an act of vigilantism. Broken Chains is recorded on the traditional land of the Awabakal people, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders, especially considering how disproportionately the prison system affects Indigenous Australians to this day. On the first episode of this season, we're going to be talking to Lucas Carey, an academic, educator and former prisoner about education in prison. Yes, it was broken. Hi, Lucas. Uh, it's uh, really great to have you on the first episode of season two of our podcast. Mate, I feel privileged to get the call up. You're doing some amazing things out there and, and yeah, getting the voice out there, which is which is what we're all about. So congratulations and hats off to you. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. Yeah, it's been a long journey, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been going pretty well. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see where it goes in the future. Why don't we start with just introducing yourself to the audience, telling us as much as you'd like to share. I'm uh, yeah, Lucas Carey. Um, I'm based at the moment in Perth in Western Australia. I used to live in Victoria. I have been a teacher for oh, 20 years, I suppose, an educator for 20 years. Was working in Victoria in a local government position and was found guilty and charged of receiving secret commissions while I was working in local office and pleaded guilty right the way through to all of that and received a one-year prison sentence. So served time in Victoria, in uh, in a Victorian jail. And yeah, it was obviously an eye-opener, but in a really perverse way. I'm actually glad it happened because it's actually given me the chance to use my own lived experience with my own educational background, with my own ex-professional coaching background. Um, and put it put almost like a little unique toolbox together to represent people that aren't getting heard of and aren't getting their voice heard and aren't getting the chance to speak and the chance to be involved in policy and procedure and I, I think when I came home as most you know of your listeners who may have been incarcerated I came home and I've got two little kids and a, and a partner and I got my parole transferred from Victoria to Western Australia and as soon as that happens, Damien, is, is a uniquely funny thing occurs. Is Victoria doesn't want anything to do with you because you're not theirs anymore. And Western Australia doesn't want anything to do with you because you're not theirs either. Right. So you become ineligible for any form of assistance because Victorian parole are like, well, you're WA's problem and WA's like, well, you're not ours. So I didn't get any access to any employment assistance, any 
training assistance, anything at all um, when I came home. And not only did that piss me off, but it also put me in a, a fairly quick mental freefall because having been an educator forever and having, having been in local government and government positions with a white collar offense, is it effectively meant that my entire career was gone. My ability to go back into those spaces was not going to happen. So what ended up happening is I was sitting on the couch funnily enough and I had to make a choice, mate, whether I turn into a 150 kilo fat bag of shit or I get off my ass and do something. And I found a group online called Convict Criminology. And it's a group that's based in the US and it's a group of academics that have got higher education, you know, whether it be masters, doctorates, et cetera, et cetera, and work together to try and get people with previously incarcerated people into academia and into positions where they can not only influence action, but they can influence policy and procedure as well. And mm-hmm. I explored that, found what that looked like. That got me off my ass and got me enrolled in a, in, in a criminology master's and got through that. And then, you know, push come to shove now, man, about, you know, what are we three years later, I'm lecturing and tutoring at six different unis across the world. We've got our own podcast as well. And I um, mentor and work with maybe 40 different, um, yeah, 40 previously incarcerated people across the world in regards to helping them write, helping them, you know, understand academia and, getting them into positions where they can influence and, um, and affect policy and procedure as well. Yeah. I really identify with what you said that where you don't see it as a negative uh, experience of prison because it's opened up some things. And yeah, it was the same for me. I was um, pretty lost before I went to prison. I was working, I was actually working three jobs that I hated. And while I was in there, I, um, I wrote a novel, which has since been published and I taught myself to draw. And now I'm also working as an illustrator and a writer. And then I, um, I've pursued a master's in something uh, completely different since I was out. And, you know, now now I'm commissioned to make this podcast as well. So I, I feel like it actually opened up a lot of opportunities, but not because the prison provided them more because I, you know, took it upon myself to, to, to try and turn it into a positive. But um, it's really amazing to hear what you're doing now, education-wise. Um, I kind of got my first, I think everyone gets their first taste of the criminal justice system before they actually go to prison. Like for me, myself, I was, I was on bail I wasn't sure if I was going to go to prison because that they were probation and parole were trying to assess me for an intensive corrections order, which is like a way to serve your sentence in the community. Very long story, which probably isn't relevant, but um, uh, that uh, I wasn't eligible for that due to a technicality. And But before we found that out, I asked the probation and parole what the education opportunities in prison were like. Something I learned the hard way was that people who work peripherally in the criminal justice system actually don't often have a really good understanding of what happens on the inside, on on the other side of the fence. Probation and parole told me that they thought the educational opportunities in prison would be state-of-the-art since it's... Uh. Yeah, yeah, see, Uh. yeah, you know that's crap. But at the time I was like, oh, wow, that's so positive because um, I was tossing up whether I wanted to um, do the intensive correction order because it it had a lot of strings attached and I'm like, oh, maybe it'll just be... I'd just rather go in there and have a quiet place to study. And um, that part of uh, like, you know, influenced uh, why I originally stopped fighting for the intensive corrections order. And I went in and then I found out pretty immediately that um, there was next to no education at all. 
The uh, only thing that was available at the first prison I went to was uh, basic literacy, which, um, uh, yeah, unfortunately wasn't helpful for me because I already knew how to read. The only other course they had was a statement of attainment in welding, which the wait time to get on the course was so long that I was going to be released before I could get on it. What was available at your prison, if anything? It's amazing how the story, and I didn't even, I don't even know, Damien, where you served your time, but it, it's amazing that you know, the people that I work with around the country, it's the same story. And it's the same story from a guy that's going to do 25 and has got limited education through to someone that did, you know, as you know, a, a drop in the sand of a year, which was myself. And the amount of people you see come in and out of there, you know, there's this people going in there, man, for parking tickets that were going into jail for three days. To me, it just, it, again, you take the idea away of the fact that I went inside, but I just see it and I just think it's a really stupid um, allocation of resources. I mean, why would we, you know, why wouldn't we look at the alternatives of why that guy ended up where they are? And, and, and as I mentioned before, I'm lucky enough to work at a few of the unis around the world now. And one of the key things we talk about is something called strain theory, S-T-R-L-I-N. And strain theory is effectively about the strains that people face that cause them to start criminal activity or criminal action. So we're talking about, you know, there might be um, unemployment, there might be domestic violence in the house, there might be, you know, low socioeconomic areas, you know, living close to, you know, right smack bang in the middle of town, you know, limited recreational and other pursuits. You know, they, these are the things that make up, you know, sort of social disorganisation. And one of the things that blew my mind when I was inside was that, mate, three quarters of the guys coming in just flatly couldn't read. And that blew my mind. And, and we went to, I actually went to the governor, you know, as, a, as an English teacher with it, I was lucky enough, had a doctorate at the time and, and paired up. It's almost that joke, you know, the, you know, the baker, the candlestick maker, there was myself, a lawyer and an accountant that met inside. And the three of us got together and went and went to the governor and said, Hey, let us develop just a basic reading program that can teach these guys to read to their kids. That's it. Let's get some functional literacy. I'm not talking we're going to get these guys to talk war and peace. You know, I'm talking about some basic things that are going to potentially help not only their own mental health, it'll give them something to focus on here, but also potentially break the cycle of incarceration and recidivism because their kids are going to start valuing reading and education as well. And that was knocked on its ass. Straight off, knocked on its ass. And the Victorian corrections, the way that works is that it's run by a TAFE. So the TAFE is, is very anal about just getting their enrolment form signed because for anyone that works in, in that space is the second you enroll, they get paid. So, so they would put, you know, there was, cut, there was absolutely required to go and do these different courses. And mate, I was a 43, I was a 40, or was I? A 40 year old fella with, a master's degree, a four master's degrees and a doctorate. Mate, I, was, I didn't need to learn to be, how to be a barista. Mate, do I look like I need to learn how to be a barber? Yeah. You know, do I look like, you know what I mean? Like it was just, there was just stupidity. And I sat with the education manager and said, hey, I need to, I want to do something here. I want to do something that's going to keep me sharp for when I get out. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Well, the best thing you can do is a graduate certificate in something. Mm -hmm. So I did a graduate certificate in professional writing. And that was good. And the other reason I did it, Damien, was literally to stop myself from getting bored. Yeah. But one of the other big challenges that I faced and saw from a lot of the other guys is that there was no link of reality to the stuff they were studying. 
you know, so there was a guy that, you know, no names, but there was a guy that a young fellow that was in there that had been persuaded by the education manager to start an accounting degree. So he'd started his accounting degree. He was two years into his accounting degree, running up his hex. And no one had had the conversation with him yet that because of the charges that he had had and the offence that he took place, which was culpable driving, that he would never be allowed to be registered as a CPA. Right. This kid didn't know that. So this kid has literally just wasted, just wasted two to two and a half years of doing a three-year degree, mm. run up $50,000 worth or $40,000 worth of hex fees. He's going to come home and do what? He's going to work for what? He can't work even for H&R Block doing tax mm. returns because right. he can't become registered. Mm. So there was that bit that got me nuts too. Yes, it was broken. It's interesting what you said there that like the uh education opportunities were the same for everyone regardless of whether they'd been in for 25 years because um i was in for 10 months in um new south wales and i when i got out i wrote a very strongly uh, worded letter to the minister of corrections on several things and one of the things i said was that um in 10 months in prison i received no meaningful education and he wrote me back a letter that said oh you know um the resources are limited and, and because you're only in there for 10 months, we found that, the, you know, priority should be, you know, focused on people with longer sentences. But, but here's the funny thing was everyone in my prison was in the same boat. Like I wasn't able to get education, but neither were the, like I talked to people who had spent seven years wanting to study that because they'd been in there for, yeah, for seven years or longer. And so it's, I, I get the feeling that, you know, if you, if you, you complain that, um, you know, I, yeah, the Minister for Corrections chose a response for me. And if somebody else wrote in a letter, that he'd choose a different response for them just to kind of shirk the responsibility. But uh, <laughs> so really frustrating that uh, no one's really interested in um, in fixing the problem. And uh, yeah, what you said about TAFE as well, like the um, obsession with uh, filling out forms. I got moved a couple of times between uh, prisons for uh, like yeah, appeals and stuff. And But the main prison I did my sentence at, they only ran two courses, first aid certificates and and forklift license. I mentioned in a previous episode of the podcast that uh, there wasn't something depressing was that they couldn't actually fill all the uh, spots on the forklift license. Partially what I mentioned last time was because uh, there weren't enough people interested. But uh, one of the reasons was it was run by TAFE. And the enrollment process was the same as for people on the outside, which meant you needed a hundred points of ID That's it. Yep. To, to enroll in the course. Uh, and now for people who haven't been in prison, you know, if you didn't have your wallet on you when you were arrested, uh, you know, your wallet doesn't come with you and it's not in your property box in prison. So if you don't have hundred points of ID in your property, it's very difficult for you to get on the course. A lot of people in prison don't have a lot of family and, um, you know, that there were like workarounds, like, you know, you could apply for your birth certificate, but that like, uh, you know, the, that was like four months. It took you to get your birth certificate. We were applying through prison, like everything applied through welfare takes forever. And so again, by the time they got some ID scraped together, the, the course was, <laughs> was open. So like, you know, the, um, the, 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 the amount of bureaucracy people face there's cause uh, yeah, it's all run by um, external providers now. So true. But one of the other funny bits too for me was that they did, and I will say though, the lady that was with from Box Hill TAFE that worked at Beechworth where I was, she was phenomenal. She was really fantastic. She got it. You know, she'd worked in business external, so she got it. But one of the things that made me laugh and it was they implemented a new traffic management program. So, you know, traffic management course, you know, go and do your traffic management course. Um, but then the certificate or the layout of the structure was that when you you had to 
you had to do finish two more units when you got home because they couldn't deliver it inside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in order to do those two units, it was going to cost you 400 bucks and you then needed to do hundred hours of unpaid experience. You're standing on so that you could be deemed appropriate or not appropriate for that position. So you, you think yourself, right? You come out of jail with a family, you come out of jail with things to go, mate, I didn't have a hundred hours and you know, a thousand bucks to be able to push towards those courses. A hundred hours. That's that's like what you need to fly a plane. <laughs> it's, Mate, yeah. I'm standing there with it. Excuse the French. I'm standing there with a fucking lollipop. Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's, so I spoke to the ladies about it and spoke to the Box Hill TAFE guys about it. And they were like, oh man, we didn't know. We didn't know. Mm-hmm. And like, and then said to them as well, and where this prison was based in, in sort of regional Victoria, they had a lot of interstate transfers over the border to Albury into New South Wales. And that the qualification wasn't recognized in any other state except for Victoria. Uh, so, it was, so it was an educator actually looking at education and, you know, I was bored. I was bored. So I started looking at this stuff and it was, um, and it was interesting. Like in New South Wales, we couldn't get access to computers for studying at all. So, I mean, I'm like thrilled to hear you could do the graduate certificate. Cause um, I went to my, um, education officer in prison and I and I, uh, yeah this is kind of surreal um I went up to his window and you know, I had an appointment and I said what can I study in prison and the education officer he said he, he shrugged his shoulders and he's like I don't know and I was like well, what do you what do you mean you don't know and he's like my job's just to enroll people in the in the first aid and forklift course and, and I said well what el- what other options do I have can I study externally and uh, can I study informally? Can I get a book posted? And he's like, oh, you definitely can't have a book posted in if it's not linked to a official course. And he said he'd look up, no one had, I don't think anyone had asked before if um, they had uh, like external courses or no one had for a while. And he, he looked it up. He told me to make an appointment with him again. I didn't see him for about a week. And I, um, I went in to see him and he said he'd looked it up. And I'd looked this up myself when I got out. Like TAFE in New South Wales doesn't run a single course that can't be completed without access to the internet. And the, yeah, the, the day of the offline correspondence course is over. You know, everything's online these days. And, you know, the world's moved on and prison stayed the same. So he couldn't find a single course for me to study. But then he did give me... Um, he gave, he's like, I did find this for you. And he was all excited and he gave me this piece of paper and it was a course for a um, non-accredited Bible correspondence class. Hey. And I, um, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him to go fuck himself. So I just smiled politely and I said, thank you. And then I, yeah, I took that. Yeah. I threw that out. But like, um, but yeah, that was the only option we had because we didn't have access to computers in New South Wales. And I'm, I, I, I wrote that to the Minister for Corrections about that and, and he, uh, he said they were running a trial and that was something they were going to consider and then I wrote to him about a year later and he said they were still running a trial and um, I looked it up a while ago and they're running another trial and I'm starting to get the opinion that the only reason they run trials on computers is to uh, have an excuse for why they haven't implemented it yet. Like, oh, but we're still running a trial. I actually generally think that's the case, but uh, with the prison system, they just don't like changing things. So, you know... The education manager for where we were, he, he was good value. He, he obviously had some systemic challenges that he had to face, but for where he was at is we, we were a lower security or, you know, minimum security prison farm for the sake of the exercise. So he had, he had a lot of educated people coming through there. So, you know, he had a lot of guys that were sort of professional, you know, accountants, lawyers, 
doctors, you know, these type of people that, that valued education. So for him, it wasn't difficult. We had the ability to, to look at, you know, the Open Universities Australia situation. You know, that gave us the ability to look at what we we're looking at. And it had to be then obviously justified back to what we wanted to do as a career and then work from there. But he actually created something in Victoria that, that was still running the last I heard, an education permit plan. And then what happened with this permit is after every eight weeks, you could apply to go to this permit. You know, if you were doing your course, your behavior was great, everything else was, was good with it. And what it allowed us to do is that he would take us to, we'd get into our civvies for the day, we'd take money out of our saving and we'd go with him to the Wangaratta Library into a, into a room. And we had access to the internet un, right. you know, for us, ourselves at that point in time, where normally we would need to go into him, you know, book a meeting with him and sit down and have your half an hour meeting with him where he would drive the mouse and cut and paste whatever you wanted him to do for mm. the sake of, of your course. But what we were able to do is we would download all of our tute files, all of our assessments, all of our lectures, everything else onto a drive he put it on his drive and then put it up on your prison drive when we got back and that actually started to become a really good carrot for some of the other guys that hadn't studied yet because we would get lunch when we were out you know because we had to you know we, we would go to the local coffee shop you'd get a smoothie or you'd get a coffee or something like that out of your own cash but it was actually a reminder for once of being alive and being mm. human and being outside and it actually put almost like a cherry damien on top of the education experience it made it people value it because it made it real and i think he did a really good job in that yes it was broken we had the kind of opposite at uh by prison i was at a working farm as well and yeah when i started there they had a uh, yeah just the forklift in the first aid course and i actually said to the educational officer i'm like i said what about that uh, demountable room full of computers and he's like what i'm like there's a whole room full of computers and he said Oh, that, uh, that, that hasn't been open for years since they laid off all the other educational staff. And I'm like, well, isn't that magical? But thankfully, about eight months into my sentence, so just before I was getting out, they did start a um, certificate of attainment in IT in, in that room, which again, isn't, isn't much to speak of, but it was better than nothing. But the, the thing was, they couldn't get anyone to enroll in the class or not many people. And the reason for that was, um, so we were a working farm. So you had to work at the prison to stay there. And we worked from 7.30 till 3.30 and then we got locked in at 5.30. So we only had two hours free time every day. That was when the the, the course ran. It ran from 3.30 to 5.30 during the only free time we had. And so people would finish work and they're tired and they didn't want to spend, uh, understandably, their only two hours of free time outside doing education. And it was just such a huge oversight because if they had have moved the, the time of that course to after we got locked in, so if the guards had came and gotten everyone who was on the class, people would have put their hands up. But, you know, nobody, like, you know, if you wanted to exercise, for example, or or, or visit your friends or just, you know, like uh, <laughs> or you play basketball or something, you, you only had two hours to do that. And if you wanted to study, that got taken away from you. And I actually, um, I was at the prison education forum in uh, 2018 at Parliament House in Sydney. And the person in charge of education in prisons in New South Wales was there. And I, and I brought that up with her and she completely agreed, but I, I'm, I'd be surprised if things have changed because they're, they're yeah, like, like you said about, yeah, unrealistic um, career goals with the education you're, you're uh, provided with and stuff like, oh uh, yeah, that the 
people in prison just don't seem to have any understanding on what it's like uh, on the other side of the fence. Like I, I guarantee you some bean counter somewhere would have looked at that IT course and said, well, well, only three people were on it. Um, looks like, you know, nobody wants education. Let's, let's just scrap it again. Like we did three years ago. And it's just, and maybe that's what they wanted to begin with because they don't want to spend the money on it. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's definitely very frustrating not having any great cop opportunities like that in there. It goes right back to mindset. I mean, it's a, it's a classic debate in, you know, in academia, in criminology of a discussion between, you know, positivism and, and classicism. you know, are we punishing or are we rehabilitating? Mm. And, you know, like to me, that's, it also brings in the discussion about the, you know, the prison industrial complex. And, yes. um, mm. you know, I mean, let's be honest about this is that the jails, the prisons need to make money. They do from what they do with their different businesses, their different industries that run with it. But also the TAFE is an industry too, but it goes back to not only the, the government that who, whichever state you're in, but also it seeps down further than that. It's then the corrections minister, but then it's also on a really micro level because you then got to think about the governor's belief or the general manager's belief, depending upon what state you're in. And then mm. it goes even further down to the officers. I mean, you would know yourself is that there were times when just for shits and giggles, some of the officers that were, you know, that weren't the nicest human beings on the planet would just shut the library and shut the computer rooms down because they could. Yeah. For no reasons, but mm. because they could. Mm. And it almost seemed that they knew that it was assessment time or there was half a dozen students or you know, 10 guys in there that are working their, their, their backsides off on assessments. Yep, come on, we're ramping it and they do a ramp through and then they close it just for the sake of closing the door. Yeah, they, they definitely have a lot of, um, <laughs> of power over people and can you know really disrupt you uh, over the most trivial reasons. There was one person studying at my prison. Um, he lobbied for years and he to try and get access to um, the university studies. Basically, the, the prison actually shifted things around and they um, created a specific educational assistance position for him so he could work in the same room as the educational officer and use the other computer. But the thing was uh, that we weren't allowed to touch computers in, in New South Wales unless we were supervised. I remember when I first went to the educational officer and he actually took me into his office after that week and we uh, tried to look up um, correspondence courses and I, um, I went to start touching his keyboard and he freaked out. He's like, no, no, you can't touch it. And then he was searching Google for me, but uh, this guy is like in his fifties or something. And he was literally typing with two fingers, which was really painful to watch and yeah and um yeah anyway they they created this position for this guy and uh he was really struggling if the education officer had to go to the bathroom uh he had to lock him out of the education room yeah. even though the computer had no internet access because you know inmates weren't allowed to touch computers without supervision and then he said he at times he couldn't get assessments in because guards would do what you said they would just like no no i i don't want to i don't want to help you with this today uh, like, yeah, it takes zero effort on their part. In my experience, the guards were a lot like the inmates. And since they were a mixed bag, some of them were helpful and yeah. some of them just, yeah, get a lot of pleasure out of bringing misery to others. And yeah, it's definitely very frustrating at times. 100% agree, my man. 100% mm -hmm. agree. So um, you completed your doctorate after you got out of prison. Is that right? No, I'd done it, but I'd finished it before. Yeah, it was an education doctorate. So a, a mm -hmm. doctor of ed. It was based on the use of lived experience, funnily enough. And I didn't think at the time that it would actually be, you know, worthwhile in the other yeah. end. But yeah. it's swings and roundabouts. When you get there and, and, and sitting in, you know, the Melbourne Assessment Prison and sitting back and writing a letter, 
producers are thinking and brains thinking about what can I do? What is this? How am I going to get through this? How is this hell going to work? And I thought of my lived experience study. And I thought, you know what? I could have a look at this. I could sit back and actually engage with this and actually look at it as a third person. And it may actually help me get through. And that's what I did. And then that helps now with what we're doing, what we're doing now. So it's an interesting process. Would you like to share about some of the things you're doing at the moment? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, we've funnily enough, and it's it's almost like you know Ford talking about Holden, but we've got our own podcast as well, which is you know, you're you're going to be on, you're going to be on in the next series. Yep, as a special <laughs> guest, Damien. So um, ours is called Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia, and we uh, are lucky enough now we we blew up. We didn't mean to. We were literally we literally started as a community radio show just to provide the local people who are coming home with the chance to, you know, to feel okay about that people that are coming home are not, you know, discards and are not human waste and that they can do some stuff. And we then blew up, like, as in, we got some, got some internationals on board to come on as guests and it went nuts. It went from, it went from just that little, you know, that little studio that we used to do on a Sunday night from, you know, from six to six to nine to you know going across 13 countries you know thousand people you know to, to anywhere between a thousand to three thousand people per listen we're in four three prisons in um new south wales now um going in on the on the tablet program uh, right it's yeah. going in there which is good and four prisons in london uh and three prisons in the us as well um and we're working on that building more i also look after the after prisons network reintegration puzzle webinar series which for anyone that's interested who has come home check out the after prisons network um, or the reintegration puzzle and what they do is that it's effectively previously incarcerated people it is practitioners it is everyone that is involved in that space that actually legitimately cares about people that have been inside come together and share stories so for example today we do this every tuesday every last tuesday of the month and Kirby Brownlow from Arco Fire in South Australia was on today and he was talking about his time inside and about how he started up the Arco Fire business to effectively, you know, mentor, liaise and work with previously incarcerated people. And, you know, he's getting questions from academics from around Australia. You know, the Red Cross is there, Corrections Victoria are there. You know, he's getting questions from people in these spaces and it's just breaking down some of those silos that let people do their thing. And I, I think the things I enjoy doing the most, to be honest, I mean, are, are working with uni students. So I work across a few different unis across the world. And that is good because it gives me the chance to actually break down what lived experience looks like. Because the first thing I have a discussion with when I talk to students is, you know, I always deliberately wear a suit or a shirt and a tie for the first session. And go in and stand up in the first lecture and we talk and you do the whole rah, rah, rah song and dance. And then we start talking about, you know, in a really, what do prisoners look like? What do criminals look like? Right. And we yeah. start the stereotype. I'm standing there in a, I'm standing there in a Ralph Lauren shirt, you know, with some proper pants, some RM Williams shoes, you know, a thousand bucks maybe for the gear on my back. And, and they're like, you know, oh, they're this and they're this and they're this. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, you know what? I've been to prison too. And so many of them are like, what? But you don't. Did I like say it. they were all scum? Like I didn't mean that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But one of the best things that comes out of it, Damien, is not only do, not only you know, amongst the, 
what do we got about a thousand students over the over all the different places we're dealing with is we we're breaking down the stigma of what lived experience is there are still people in those rooms and there are still students in there that don't get it and there's still students in there that their own biases and their own reasons for going into the criminal justice system won't ever let them understand and appreciate and i get that i respect that because you know a lot of those decisions aren't even theirs you know they've been entrenched in them since they were born but you know for the ones that aren't you know what what we're doing some great stuff with is i'm trying to mix and match as many of the really promising students with people with lived experience and to get them to start writing together so you know a couple of students from unsw that i've worked with are now writing um, some work doing a, a literature review on how our victims of sexual assault are affected in Australia. And in order to do that as two first year students, I've now introduced them to and paired them up with two females that serve time as standing up from self, self-defense, et cetera, et cetera, and related courses or related situations because they were domestic violence and sexual assault victims. What that does now is it empowers all four of those girls and then four of those people is not mansplaining because we're doing the same thing with some of the guys, but yep. you know, those four, those four girls now are working on something together. Today, a guy student is really interested in the motivations of, of, of criminality and especially higher end criminality, you know, the ability to take someone's life or cause, cause harm. So this young kid now, when I've rung him and spoken to him today, just about had a stroke because I rang him up with a zoom call with two guys that have served 20 and 25 years. As you know, you don't get 25 years because you cuddled someone the wrong way. Yeah. So, so he's now talking to those guys. So this kid now is having his own lived experience ideas about what people that have been incarcerated are like. It, it makes me smile because it mm. means that we're breaking this thing down. Yes, it was broken. I even had like biases myself, like going in there. I remember like, you know, in New South Wales, um, if you're sentenced to like 20 or 30 years or something, um, they typically don't just, you know, open the door of maximum security and let you out like three years before you get released, you're eligible to be downgraded to minimum security. So there were actually a, quite a few people at my prison who were coming to the tail end of their, you know, 25 year sentence for murder. And I mean, I had a preconceived idea about murderers myself. And I mean, this might sound a little bit crazy to anyone who's never met one, but I, um, I never met a murderer in prison that I couldn't get along with, you know, they, they typically they were just someone who uh, they, you know, very few, there are very few Ivan Malats out there. Typically a murderer is someone who lost their temper once very strongly and then spent the next, you know, 30 years regretting it. I, I've got a completely different perspective on, uh, on all different types of offenders since being in there myself. Yeah. It's great that you can um, share that to uni students as well. I'm actually, um, uh, being interviewed for uh, a lecture on um, the University of Sunshine Coast uh, next week, which will be my kind of first experience in the university system as a former prisoner. So I'm kind of looking forward to, to how that goes and um, might be interested in talking to you about um, getting involved with your problems yourself, uh, programs right. rather. Yeah, yeah. Like, don't get involved in my problems. You'll be yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've been there for a month, brother. But it's interesting what you say about, you know, about those guys. And then as a white collar offender, when you go in is, is, is the, as you guys know, the law of the jungle is that you shouldn't necessarily hit it off. And, and the guy that I hit it off with the most is a guy that was in there on the back end of a 27 year stint for, you know, for, for, for knocking someone. And I'm still, I'm still friends with him to this day. Yeah. When my family would come and visit is mate, my boys would go and sit on his knee, you yeah. know, like, and this almost gets to the point now, it's something that I learned really quickly. And it's something I don't care is 
I don't care what you did, mm. you know, as long as you own it. And what I mean by that is I've had to, you know, with the work I do is I've had to not knock people away because it's not the right term, but revisit when I'm going to start assisting and developing and working with people because they're not quite there yet in their own journey. And mm. what I mean by that is that, you know, there are still some guys that may have done what they've done, whether they have or haven't, don't care. But it's the fact is that some continue to do it afterwards or some yep. mm. don't own it as in, you know, some don't own it as in they're like, you know, oh, no, nah, you know, I didn't, I was innocent. Nah, 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 nah. Or that's to me is like, okay, yeah, cool. I, I get it, but you're not ready yet to take that next step. So let's chat again soon. And I don't continuously wipe them off, but I'll go back to them again. Yeah, there was a guy that I was doing some work with that, that was involved in some domestic, some domestic violence stuff. And he hadn't stopped. He just changed the way he was doing it. And, and, right. and I was like, I'm not there yet. I'm not there in that position to work with you yet until you start owning your stuff. And that took us, I reckon, six to eight months. And then mm -hmm. we, we spoke again and he apologized. He said, man, he goes, I was a twat. He goes, I was still doing the same stuff I was doing, but I just did it differently. It, it took me, it took you and a few other people just to knock me on my ass to realize that, you know, I was still doing it. And, mm. you know, and, and now that guy works, you know, really strongly as an advocate with other domestic violence perpetrators to, to assist. Yeah. And, and, and it's a good thing. Oh, it sounds like a great project. Probably to finish, I thought I'd ask, but looking at the statistics on prison education and um, I saw in, uh, in 1996 to 97, 57% um, of people in prison in Australia were being provided with some form of education. And as of 2018, 2019, that's dropped down to 38%. I feel like the um, like stigma around prison is changing a little bit. Like uh, we are getting the word out there a bit, but um, what's, how, how are you feeling about the situation? Like, do, do you see things improving for education in prison or do you think we're just, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle or. It's, it's really interesting depending upon the statistics you look at, because as you know, yourself, mate, these stats can tell you, you can look at the same stats and they can tell you four different stories in the higher education status. There's some really good programs that are being developed by some good colleges you know U university of southern queensland through yes you know mm -hmm. stephen seymour you know um, susan reich lauren humby um you know marcus harms these guys are fantastic however there's one thing missing from the osq program they mm. don't have any teachers and lecturers that are on there that have got lived experience so i've had this conversation with these guys a million times and they get it they're in the process of getting there but they're not there yet and mm. you know then we look at you know, over here in WA is Curtin University is developing the same thing. They've got a really good hold on, you know, some of the study and stuff here, but guess what they're missing? Mm, right. Lived experience. And, yeah. and it goes back to that conversation beforehand is the two most famous rehabilitation programs in the world are Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. Everyone in the world knows about those. And there's two mm. things that they bring together. They bring together education, but they also bring together lived experience. We miss that. We miss that horrendously as an education setup. And it is a big thing. There's this piece of work that was done uh, on what's called insider perspective. And you, know, you and I have giggled and chuckled at some of the stuff we've talked about. And some of our listeners will be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Or, you know, I get that. Insider perspective means is that when you meet someone else that's been previously incarcerated, there's almost a level of acceptance with that person because they know what you know. Yes. Yeah. So, so you're able as a researcher, you're able as an educator to actually get your, this is a horrible saying, but you're able to get your teeth in deeper because mm. 
they trust you to do it because mm. they know that you're not just there talking about it. Oh, yes, I uh, I read a story about someone being strip searched. Uh, nah, strip mm. searched a hundred times. I know mm. what it feels like. I know exactly what you're feeling. Mm. So it gives you that. And I think those universities are doing some great things, mind you, are doing some really great things. And they're doing some great things in the numbers of people that are accessing higher education in jail. But there's so many states that are not. You know, you look at New South Wales is is way behind. ACT is getting much, much better because they've got, you know, Lorana Bartels and, and Carolyn Doyle up there at University of New South Wales in, in Canberra that are doing this stuff. You know, Tasmania is lagging. You know, South Australia is really lagging. South Australia is is way behind on this ball. So that varies and that that changes if you look at that. But we're still only talking 5% of students. Yeah, six percent of students, maybe close to seven for Queensland. Yeah, you think about that. You think about how many people are in jail, and then then it expands out of the next section, mate, about what education actually is. Because I did a barista's course. Is that education or is that a fundraising process for them? Yeah, it's technically classed as education, but mm. yeah, I think it exists. I think there are some strong links, but the sooner that it's understood that we're able to bring in authenticity in our education through the inclusion of lived experience and education, things will change even more. There was a guy at my prison. He was in for drug offenses, but he'd been through rehab and he wanted to like uh, get involved in programs that provide you know rehabilitation to other drug users to try and get them clean. And he applied to study a course related to that. And it turns out the in New South Wales at the time, uh, probably we still do, but uh, the prison had a formal policy that you couldn't study anything that was uh, in some way related to the crime you committed. So he couldn't study drug and alcohol rehabilitation because he was in for drug and alcohol offences. And I mean, is how, how ridiculous is that? You know, because yeah, we do need those lived in experiences and they're actually, not only are they not facilitating that, they're going out of their way to stop us from doing that. So... Some of the universities are fantastic as in, you know, and I know USQR and I know that, you know, and I know those guys and I'm not having a shot at them by any stretch, but you know, we've got, um, you know, I work at a said the half a dozen unis and I get approaches by unis because they do come and ask me to talk and to, to shoot and to lecture because of not only the PhD, but because of the lived experience and because it's a unique link is that the ability to discuss education and talk about that and move it across and, over the journey, mate, was I've done a, you know, a little bit of work on on the levels of, of education. And I sort of define three levels across the board. And the first is the highly literate, which is someone, you know, yourself, myself, that goes in with higher education degrees, et cetera, et cetera. The second is functionally literate, as in, you know, someone that can read a Centrelink form, can read a sign, you know, can fill out bits and pieces, but couldn't sit down and read you know, hunger games or couldn't sit down and read a book. Right. And then you've got, then you've got the almost, I say almost, almost illiterate because those guys are the guys that can't and they can't function or they can barely write their name or they can barely, you know, fill out a form. And, and you know, as well as I do, those guys have developed some really good defense mechanisms. Oh, I've got something in my eye. I've got a busted hand. <laughs> I forgot you know, my glasses. Can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All those yeah. things. And, and, and all those things. So, I think being mindful for all three of those levels is something that we need to get better at. Definitely sounds like a plan. Hopefully one day we can make it happen. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we go? Mate, hats off to you what you're doing because, you know, there's so many silos around the place and, and you know, hats off and, and, and honest to goodness appreciate you. And this is the first time we've had the chance to meet and chat and, 
you know, appreciate what you're doing and appreciate the effort you're putting in and believe it or not, mate, you're changing lives. And just by having this conversation, there'll be someone out there that's been, you know, triggered in a positive way to be like, you know what, I don't have to go back to doing that. Or, you know what, I can start my education now, or if I'm inside, you know, I'm not going to sit here for a year. I'm going to start doing something. And, and, and you've started that conversation. So hats off to you, my friend. No, thanks a lot. And, and likewise, and I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to being on, on your podcast next. Yeah. <laughs> mate, looking forward to it, brother. And mate, if you, and, and please give out my, my contact details to any of your listeners, if any of your listeners want to reach out, you know, they're thinking of doing some writing, they're thinking of maybe starting some study or doing anything of that, let me know because there's always those students that I mentioned that we can link you up with to get that process started, you know, and it will assist you and assist things moving forward and just, as a support mechanism, you know, reach out, man. I'm always open to taking a phone call and having a yarn with someone that's been inside. So just uh, just contact, mate, pass them on and let them know that I'm here for them. Yeah, sounds good. I'll, I'll definitely put some links in the show notes. Excellent, my friend. I appreciate you and appreciate what you're doing. But she was no more broken than a spear with a chipped blade. Marks like those were signs of strength. Marks like those were signs of, signs of strength. Well, thanks for tuning back into Season 2 of Broken Chains. And don't forget to check out Lucas's podcast, Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia. Broken Chains is hosted by myself, Damien Lanane, and is produced by Newcastle Libraries. Music is provided by Louisa Magrix. On the next episode of Broken Chains, we're going to be talking to Brett Collins, former prisoner and current manager of prison activist group Justice Action. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to smile, and we'll see you next time. Dines of strength. Marks like those were signs Dines of strength. This has been a Newcastle Library's real production.